When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Hollywood Reporters Behind the Screen. I'm Carolyn Jardina, and in this episode, we're talking with Oscar-winning re-recording mixer Paul Massey, whose work on No Time to Die earned him his 10th Academy Award nomination. Paul is also set to receive the Cinema Audio Society's highest honor, the Career Achievement Award, during the 58th Cinema Audio Society Awards on March 19th. Paul won an Oscar, BAFTA, and CAS Award for Bohemian Rhapsody, as well as BAFTA and CAS Awards for Walk the Line and Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World. He received an additional CAS Award for Ford vs. Ferrari and an additional BAFTA for Almost Famous. Massey, who has enjoyed a long-time collaboration with directors including Ridley Scott and James Mangold, was born near Pinewood Studios in London, studied music at the Royal Academy of Music, and played in various bands and orchestras before beginning his career in sound. He has also recorded and mixed albums as well as live tours for bands such as Yes and Supertramp. In this conversation, which was recorded on February 5th, I talked with Paul about No Time to Die, and joined by some of his colleagues and friends, we chatted about his career. You can also hear Paul discuss his work on Bohemian Rhapsody in a February 24th, 2019 episode of Behind the Screen, and Ford vs. Ferrari in an episode from November 15th, 2019. Hi, Paul. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Carolyn. So you have such a wide range of, um, of films that you've worked on, but what did it mean to you to do your first Bond film? Oh, it <laughs> meant the world to me. Um, you know, I was born in England, as you just mentioned, and um, I think the the King franchise for anyone living in England is, has got to be Bond. It's obviously the, the longest standing, and uh, it's just part of the heritage and part of the history of, of growing up in the UK. So for me to be asked was a was a massive honor, and uh, I just leapt at the chance. It was great. How did you come onto the project? Um, I was asked by uh, Oliver Tani, who was the uh, sound supervisor on the film. Oliver and I have done several films together um, uh, in the past, and he and Mike Solinger had been talking about uh, who to bring onto the project for re-recording. Mike was the associate producer and post-supervisor for No Time to Die. And um, between the two of them, they they thought I would fit. And uh, I got a call and happily said yes. That was it. <laughs> well, let's talk about the film. Um, the first action sequence is the one that takes place in Italy. Um, and we have the car chase around the village and then um, the sequence in the square where uh, the sounds of the bullet striking the Aston Martin uh, really told the audience that the clock was ticking on how much longer they would be safe, really adding to the tension. Um, would you tell us about the mix on that scene? 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. That's one of my favorite scenes from the film. Um, the, uh, the, the build-up uh, emotionally into that scene um, has, has Bond questioning Madeleine's um, loyalty to him and, and his love for him, uh, her love for him. Not only is there a lot of action going on, but there's a lot of emotion going on between the two of them inside the car. And um, apart from just being an epic Aston Martin car chase through wonderfully colourful streets, you know, in Italy, when they do finally get uh, sideswiped, T-boned there, and they come to a stop inside Donut Square, as we as we came to call it, there's a lot of mistrust between the two of them inside the car, as well as the threat of the of the villains on the outside firing at them, trying to get them killed. So. Um, it takes a while there for Bond to really come to grips with what he's supposed to be doing in terms of getting out of there and saving their lives. Uh, he knows that the glass is going to be holding for a while, but uh, Oliver and his team did a wonderful job with the sound effects uh, and Mark Taylor mixing them. So you get the threat of the bullets on the outside and the guns going off with full impact. You get the idea that the glass is, is withholding and will withhold for quite a long time. But slowly, as they're shooting at the same spot on the, on the glass, it's going to give way eventually, and uh, and they're going to die. So um, not only do you get the full impacts of the violence from outside of the car, but inside the car, uh, Mark T Taylor did a fantastic job of, of mixing in a 360-degree environment, utilizing Atmos, um, where you could hear the dull thuds of the impacts of the bullet on the glass from the interior perspective, but you could also pick up the real threat, which was that the shards of glass were starting to fall and, and break, and uh, they were really in imminent danger. So by the time Bond looks at Madeline and says, okay, we're going to get out of here, and, and takes off and starts spinning the car around and shooting from, um, from the headlights, we've already had a, a really amazing auditory experience from inside that car's perspective. And then, of course, it just takes off, and we're into a, a full-on... Um, you know, victory moment for Bond where he's stopping the villains, he's getting away, um, and then he puts Madeleine on the train to say goodbye. Um, it's a wonderful sequence, visually, the direction on it, um, the acting, and uh, some great opportunities for sound. It was really great. How much of the production sound did you use? Quite a lot, actually. Simon Hayes did an amazing job of... Um, recording as much detail as he could, atmospheres as well as um, um, on location impacts and such like that. So there was quite a lot used, but of course it was um, enhanced drastically by Oliver and, and James and their teams. James Harrison was the co-supervisor. But they did an amazing job recording the cars. They had, they had a couple of days, I believe, to record the Aston Martins and... Um, and of course, all of the guns and everything that anything that they needed was provided by Eon and uh, Michael Wilson and uh, Barbara Broccoli. They were very, very good in in allowing as much recording time as was necessary to to assemble a vast library. Now, another thrilling sequence was uh, the one when uh, Bond and Felix are in the sailboat as it's sinking, and and that was shot on the uh, the soundstage at Pinewood, as I understand it. Yes, uh, I believe it was shot there. In the uh, underwater tank. In the um, underwater tank, yeah. Well, that was a huge challenge. Um, Simon, again, did a wonderful job recording the production dialogue. 
but obviously it had noise on it. Those um, there was a lot of bubbles coming up from the uh, from the water. Um, there was a lot of creaking and ronking um, from the the gimbal or whatever they were using there. Fortunately, Carrie, our director, uh, said he wanted that environment to start off very loud and very noisy, um, and and there was a lot of emphasis put on the ship creaking and rolling. And, and metal strains, um, as, as well as all of the water obviously rushing in and, and taking up the space. As the scene progressed, though, we needed to become more emotional as um, Felix was dying. And as Bond realized that he was losing one of his best friends, the atmospheres and all of that effects environment needed to back off somewhat. And, and so we had to rely on dialogue. And unfortunately, we managed to clean it up enough that um, I think we only used a couple of words of ADR in the whole thing. The rest was all production dialogue. And then as, as the effects were retreating, Felix was dying. The music was coming up with the emotion as well from Hans Zimmer. And, and so at that moment, the three elements of dialogue, music and effects were, were all sort of equal. And then the emotion took off. It was a great sequence, though, and Carrie wanted it to be very, very alive, very dynamic, very um, uh, noisy. I mean, one of his instructions to us was that, you know, the engine rooms on those trawlers are incredibly noisy. And um, so even though we lose the engine quite quickly because the water was rushing in, you know, he wanted that environment to be very real at the beginning of that scene. Uh, it was quite a challenge. And, and then... You know, again, very similar to Donut Square, where, where Bond had to make the decision emotionally as well as physically to get out of there and save their lives. Uh, Bond had to make the decision to finally let his, his friend Felix go. And there was that emotion, a lot of it shown through the score. Uh, and then, of course, he had to save his life. He had to get out of there as quickly as he possibly could. So... Um, that was a very challenging sequence. I would say, actually, you've picked up on the two very, very challenging <laughs> sequences of the whole film. <laughs> well, you, you've used the word emotion a few times, and um, you know, and this film, obviously, in addition to all of the action, is incredibly emotional. Would you talk about just how you balanced action and emotion, and um, maybe what were some of the challenges to some of the quieter scenes? Yeah, I mean. Um, Clearly, there was there was a lot of action sequences throughout the film, like the car chase in Norway with helicopters and all of the rest, and and so, in a way, those kind of look after themselves because it's kind of expected as to how those should sound. You're going to need the, um, you know, the the reality. You're going to need the adrenaline. You're going to need need the music. Um, and so, Mark and I went through and. Um, try to organize those scenes so that they weren't just flat, but the effects were leading where they needed to lead and music was leading where it needs needed to lead, et cetera. But one of the things we, we discussed at length throughout the whole film was that we did not want it to become overwhelming uh, to, to an audience, just in terms of intensity and, uh, um, and, and level. So we were trying to vary colors within quiet scenes as well uh there was it was very important for us to get the shape and an arc of the film so that the quiet scenes really allowed the dialogue and the emotion of the dialogue or, or whatever had to be portrayed during those scenes to live but not live in a flat way we were constantly trying to change backgrounds and um and perspectives on dialogue and reverbs and things like that so that hopefully in subtle ways that maybe the hopefully the audience doesn't even notice those scenes don't become 
flat and boring and simply a, a layer of air and dialogue. I mean, we, we didn't want that to happen. But we were trying to very carefully maintain that arc throughout the film so that it wasn't a roller coaster ride, but it also had relief in the quiet scenes from the intensity of some of the um, you know, bullet-filled car chase sequences. And sometimes those quieter scenes can be much more difficult than the than the full-on action sequences. Um, right. We're also, you know, trying to be very conscious of overall level, even when we got into the loud sequences, so that so that they didn't just become a, a barrage of, you know, harsh-sounding bullets or something um, on the audience. We're trying to maintain some sort of discipline there. <laughs> I have to say, it was great to be able to see it in a theater again. Oh yeah, <laughs> this, that that this film definitely needs to be seen in a theater. I mean, okay, it's all right on TV if you have to watch it at home, but it's a theatrical <laughs> film for sure. What was the collaborative process like with uh, with your director, Kari Fukunaga? He was great. He's he's very into sound. He was very particular about sound. Some of the sequences, you know, for instance, the uh, Jamaican nightclub uh, where Bond goes to meet Felix. Um, he, I, I could never get that band loud enough for him. <laughs> he was, he was, he told me I, I need to get out more to get to some clubs. But um, I mean, I just physically couldn't even get it louder. One of one of the great things there, though, and in terms of you know getting back to Carrie, he he knew that the actors needed to be projecting during that sequence. There was going to be a lot of loud music. Uh, finally inserted into the scene um, when we were mixing it. He knew that obviously ahead of time. And so he would he played fairly loud music on set so that all of the characters did actually shout a little bit over the music and project. Um, and then we were able to um, get a lot of that music out. Uh, I think I think actually what Simon described was that he used a, more of a thud track. So they had the beat and they had level within the room, but it didn't have a lot of high frequency percussion or guitars or anything like that within their production dialogue, which was very smart. Because when we got then got to the final, I was able to subdue that uh, sim simply because it was low in thuds. Um, and the, the, the actors were still projecting beyond the level of the music when they were filming. And, um, and then, when I, then I was able to get the music in obviously with a lot of club beat in there anyway, a lot of thuds and low end and low frequency information in the music and get that up very, very close to the dialogue. Um, and this was all due, be, due to Carrie having the foresight to, to make sure that Daniel and the others were projecting while they were filming, which was great. It was really wonderful. So, so Carrie had that kind of detail in mind and, and throughout the final mix, he would allow us to come up with the mixes that we wanted and, and wanted to present to him. And then he would riff off of those and have, have his ideas of, of how we should take it further. Um, it was really, really a very comfortable collaboration, I have to say, between all of us. And would you like to also talk about not just the collaboration with the director, but with the rest of the sound team and, and even, uh, you know, the editors, Tom Cross and Elliot Graham, the whole team? Yeah, no, it was, it was, it, it felt like it sounds ridiculous because it was obviously a big budget film, but it uh, it felt like a very, uh, in many ways, a small family film being put together because that's just the way the whole crew in post was was working together. Uh, we actually didn't have very much time to final this, even though it sat on the shelf for I guess about a year and a half. But we 
were initially rushing to the deadline of the initial release prior to the pandemic. And, and we had three weeks to final mix this. So what that meant was that we had to work together as a team, very quickly enhancing every part of what everyone else was doing. Um, and in many ways, that was uh, very beneficial to the film, I think, because when you're working together like that, you don't have the opportunity to go, oh, it's sort of okay, we'll come back to it later on. It was like, no, if we have an issue here, we have a problem or a way to deal with the soundtrack or editorially, we need to sort that out right now and we need to move on. We need to make a decision and come to a conclusion and work together very quickly to, to get us you know, to, to what was the end result. And in many ways, that also is great, I feel, because it doesn't allow you to go back and deal with all the minutia that sometimes... Sometimes I feel a lot of films that have time on their side get to a point in the soundtrack and then they kind of destroy it a little bit because they manage to go back in microscopically and, and make changes. I don't think that always helps the end, end product. I think sometimes your initial gut feeling about a scene or a sequence or, or a cue and the way you assemble it and mix it comes out with a much better, more vivid, lively end soundtrack. And I think we were all just working together in that way. I mean, I've worked with Tom and Elliot individually, uh, not as a dual editing team. I've worked with them individually in the past on other films. And they're both wonderful. They both have slightly different styles, obviously. Um, and they worked very, very well together on this. But again, because of the quantity of material they had to get through and the visual effects and all the rest, and, and the constant updating of the edit while we were mixing, it was just another sort of facet of, of how we were working together as a team. And, you know, they would come, we would put something together and assemble it on the final mix stage at Goldcrest. And then um, they would come in and, and review and then Carrie would come in and review. And we would all know that we were working to a goal that had to be achieved pretty quickly. And so, you know, we had no choice but to work together well. And, and we did very, very well. It was great. And then Oliver Tani and James Harrison and their team, uh, as I mentioned before, uh, I'd worked with them before many times. The dialogue editorial team with Becky Ponting, um, Hans Zimmer and his team I'm very familiar with, and they were wonderful as well. Mark Taylor, I've mixed with several films with him now. Um, so it was all very familiar. Everyone knew what to expect from each other, which is a fantastic feeling. Um, and it really, really did feel like a sort of a small family film that we were putting together on a massive scale. <laughs> that sounds so contradictory, but it was true. It was great. We can't talk about this film without talking about the ending. Would you tell us about mixing that? Yeah, well, for, for an awful long time, we uh, actually didn't even see the final shot. We were told what was going to happen. But, uh, you know, obviously it was a very closely guarded secret and they certainly couldn't get out to the public what was going to happen. I mean, this being Daniel Craig's final outing as, as Bond, um, I think that's probably why I've mentioned emotion so many times, because it, it, it was an emotional film. Um, yes. It, uh, certainly, certainly for him. And that whole last sequence, once he realizes that he doesn't have time to get off of the island, and um, spoiler alert, uh, as I hope everyone knows now, <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't. He doesn't get off the island, um, and and he's ordered the missile attack on the island, and he knows that he's going to have to just stay there. And he already knew, obviously, that the young girl was his daughter with Madeleine, and he knew he had to get them to safety. 
Um, and the conversation that he and Madeleine have on the on the walkie-talkie right at the very end, right before the missiles hit the island, is extremely emotional. And, and you, as an audience member, you want to know, you want that conclusion, you want to know that that was, the, the young girl was his daughter. And you want to know about the conflict that was going on inside his head about having to stay on the island and his love for Madeleine and his now his his new family. And, and yet you also know that he knew a long time ago, many, many scenes ago, that he probably wasn't going to get off the island. And he knew uh, about his new family situation and his love for Madeleine. So all of those things combined, when you get to the very, very end, along with Hans's score, which was absolutely incredible during that sequence. It's a very, very, very slow build. Um, and it has the threat of the missiles within it. And it has the love and the emotion between the two characters within it. And it has the sort of coming to grips with the reality that Bond wasn't going to make it from Q and, and the home office in, in London's perspective. All of those things are all put together in that one sequence. Um, they realize they're going to lose him. He Bond confesses his love for Madeleine and his daughter. He knew he had to stay there. He's made the decision selflessly to stay there. And Hans, Hans Scott, this this whole scene took a took obviously a long time to to mix, and it had to be a very 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 slow ramp up to that final conclusion. Um, and I I think he totally nailed it. And um, I I had a lot of fun trying to get that ramp um, to the point where it was emotional, not overwhelming, but but fulfilling and large enough when when the missiles hit and and the shock of the fact that Bond just died. So it 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 took um, it took several runs at that, I have to say, <laughs> trying to decide where the arc, where where the ramp should be within the score to deliver what we needed and not not to peak too early and but to get there at the end. It was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun to mix and uh, very, very fulfilling by the time it was finished. And um, again, I think I think Hans just nailed it. and and Daniel really nailed it with his acting as well. You know, this was this was his version of Bond coming to a conclusion after so many films, um, and uh, and I think he, uh, he he really portrayed that along with Carrie's direction. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, in recognition of your Career Achievement Award, I'd like to talk about your career as well. And I brought a few of your friends along to help with this conversation. Oh, my gosh. Hi. (laughs) (laughs) I hope I didn't say anything rude. (laughs) I I haven't known you to do that yet, so I don't think so. That's not fair, Carolyn. (laughs) Bryce. Hello, Paul. So for our listeners, we have re-recording mixer Andy Nelson, film editor Michael McCusker, and 
supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer David Giamarco joining us. Thank you guys. Wow, that was a huge surprise. Happy birthday. Oh, no. <laughs> Paul, would you like to start by telling us a little bit about your music career? And uh, and I think there are some questions that uh, they would like to ask as well about that, working with some of the bands. Oh, okay. Well, so, I mean, I, I started off, I, get, I started my whole career starting off in, in, in music recording and engineering at a music studio. Um, albums, demos, scores. Um, you know, whatever was necessary to to record. I, it was great fun. I was, you know, 18, 19. Um, and then I uh, I got an opportunity to um, work with a concert tour company, um, Concert Productions International in Toronto. They had um, a, a, um, a contract with a pay-per-view in the States to record uh, and produce live concert shows for uh, various bands, big, big world-class bands. And I was hired to join the tour uh, on for, for a, a few venues or a few weeks um, with each one of these bands and uh, record their concerts, um, mainly in stadiums from, you know, trucks in buried in the bellies of these stadiums and, um, and then go progress further as, as the cut was brought together for the concert films. I would then um, do the music mixes and and the post production on them as well. So it was it was a great opportunity to be involved throughout the entire process for each one of these concerts. And so I spent a lot of time with with Yes. Um, I, I recorded um, uh, Super Tramps, uh, what was going to be their last tour in Toronto, and um, I managed to get one one recording with the band in Vancouver and. Um, the police synchronicity concert um, and 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 several others, Emmylou Harris, um, Christoberg. It was really a great time for me. I was, and it was really my introduction into putting sound together with picture, which I'd never done before because um, you know everything up to that point for me had just been recording and mixing sound. So it was um, it was the first time that I started to understand the language of how you know what does the picture editor do and how do they speak and what do they mean when they're when they're talking about different um, uh, techniques and, and dissolves, what is a dissolve? I have no idea. You know, all of those things. I started to get an opportunity to um, to be introduced into those, and from that, I sort of did a natural drift into film, and I had an opportunity to to uh, go to Deluxe in Toronto um, and start working there as a film re-recording mixer, which is where I met Andy. Met Andy. Yeah. That's right. And um, when Andy moved to LA, then Andy, you were on the next plane, I believe, right <laughs> after me. <laughs> Andy very, uh, very nicely recommended me, and um, some yeah. very foolish people decided to hire me, and um, I moved to LA. And that was that was basically how I just uh, none of this was planned at all. It was just a great big drift, to be honest. Is it ever? Is it ever? <laughs> Paul, I've got one question for you. I was thinking as you were saying that, you know, when we started on film mixing and, uh, you know, way back when, when we worked together in Toronto, you know, obviously we were on six-track mag in those days. Do you think now, it's interesting hearing you talk about the music because do you think now it's kind of gone full circle because with 
Pro Tools and the track availability, you're, you're back to sometimes mixing music as if you were back in a music studio where we, we could never do that on film in the same way. And I wonder if that's something that's, uh, you know, do you find you just pull, use all those techniques from all those years ago when you're, when you're in this sort of world that we're in now? Yeah, definitely, Andy. I mean, I'm, I'm very grateful for that experience that I had with, um, you know, recording and mixing 24 track with these bands. And uh, that was a very big, um, a very big part of me going into Bohemian Rhapsody with Queen. Obviously, we were use, utilizing all of their 24 tracks and uh, I was able to draw on, on that experience of, uh, yeah. you know, what it sounded like inside a... Um, a stadium and uh, but you're very you're very correct now we can have 24 48 96 tracks it doesn't matter it's limitless yeah. almost uh on pro right. yeah sometimes though i find that the discipline of having a restricted amount of tracks is 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 beneficial i don't know about how you feel about that um well i i mean i didn't come through the same same background as you so i've always worked more in film and had that sort of limited access, if you like, to a degree. But I know what you mean. Sometimes too many choices, you know, you, you, you sometimes work better with the limited choice you have and be creative with it, I think, than maybe just opening up a big can of worms, which can happen, as we know, with uh, uh, when you go back to sort of square one. So I agree with you. If, you, if you've got a really I've good... I've never seen that happen. Just that's never uh, happened. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, you've never hey, seen the can of never, water. Never seen that happen to you, Paul, has it? Really? <laughs> but uh, no, it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's interesting because it's... Uh, if you've got a, I think if you've got a combination of somebody who's really captured the music well and, and handed it to you, in some ways, you're right. It's, you, you know, a lot of those searching moments are gone and you can just... Um, focus on the task in hand. Yeah, agreed, hundred percent. But you know, then again, Pro Tools does does have a lot of uh, advantages that we didn't used to have in terms of sure. alignment and all of that. Oh yeah, <laughs> and undos. Yes, <laughs> there was none of that. <laughs> Twenty-four track tape. You just you punched, and that was it. All right, it was. Do you miss the road, Paul? The groupies, the parties. <laughs> Not anymore, Mike. No, <laughs> it actually wasn't as fun as you might. Oh, God. <laughs> oh I bet it was. You're letting me down. <laughs> but you know, when you're in your twenties, it's it was a great time to be doing that. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. yeah. At um, my slightly older than thirty age now, I would. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I want to do that again. <laughs> Mike, you also had a memory from uh, when the two of you were working on Walk the Line. Oh, well, that was kind of, that was my first movie. So, um, so I, you know, I wasn't a complete uh, foreigner to the mixing stage, but I wasn't in a chair that had a voice. You know, I was assistant for many years. So I kind of came in for the, for the final run and made, watched, and that was it. So I arrived on the stage with a lot of ideas, but not really having the confidence nor I think actually the lexicon to, to speak them. And I think that I was extremely lucky to run into Paul Massey because um, he just handled the situation and, and, and me and my sort of greenness in such a graceful way. I mean, he didn't 
in a different scenario with different people, I think I would have had, I, I would have felt intimidated. I don't think I would have been able to, uh, give my input. Um, and Paul made, made me feel incredibly comfortable. And he, he recognized when I was lucky about this, he recognized that I did have a voice and I did have a creative voice and I just didn't know exactly how to speak it. So he, he solicited and wanted to know and, um, and, uh, allowed me to just kind of express myself in the best way I knew how. So when he said earlier, you know, what it is, what it's, what a picture editor says and what a picture editor, how they speak and what's, what's on their mind. Um, well, I was new to a picture editor <laughs> and I was new to the mixing stage and I just, uh, he, I, I just, the, the best I could do was to speak of the emotion of the, of the scenes and the movie and what we we're trying to achieve. And, um, and he listened and he, he executed and incorporated and, um, really made me feel like I was part of the really a part of the process of my first movie. And, uh, I just, I, I, I know that after that experience sitting with him, literally sitting at the, at the console with him and asking questions and learning, you know, what terminology is, uh, he helped me to improve over the years and become more of a, a, a voice, um, and, um, and be able to express myself. And I think, I thank God I, I, he was the first mixer I worked with. I, I, I'm, I'm, I thank God for that moment. I thank God for the fact that I get to work with him often. We've done seven movies together and uh, we're going to head into an eighth. So um, I just really excited for you. It's about time. Congratulations. Thank you, Mike. That's very kind of you to say. I, I should also add that you were far taller than me. So I was quite intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> First time I've heard that. <laughs> David, you've also done a lot of movies together. Yeah, we have. And uh, I'm very, very fortunate to be able to sit beside you, Paul, and work with you and watch you. And I love watching you. And I'm probably you're wondering who's looking over your shoulder all the time. But um, so I get to watch you. I get to ask you questions. And that, I'm in this incredible place. And uh, you're always giving and always telling us what, what you're doing. And what, you know, what would you tell young mixers out there who want to do and, and be where you are and get to where you are? And how do they, like your music background has been so incredible in what you do now today. And, and what kind of things would you tell somebody coming up and where they should go and what they should look for? Well, thank you, Dave, first of all. And I'm, I'm very privileged to sit next to you on for so many years. We've done so many films together. And it's been a truly uh, wonderful experience for me. So I'd like to add that. Um, what do you tell young, young people trying to get into our industry? I mean, the industry is changing so quickly, but it's always changed so quickly and it's evolved so many times. Andy mentioned earlier about, you know, when we were back on MAG, we were also, there were also a lot of houses that were working off of synchronized tape. Um, and we evolved through various picture editorial machines, computers, you know, like Lightworks and Avid and such. Um, and now we're on Pro Tools and, and it'll change again. And so I think it, it's constantly evolving. Uh, I, I think any advice I would give to someone who wants to get into it uh, is just to follow your passion, um, whatever it is that you would like to get into. If you're interested in sound, you could probably apply that to 
many different avenues. Maybe you prefer to be in theater. Maybe you'd like to be on a, on a concert tour. Maybe you would like to be dealing with music. Maybe you'd like to be recording sound effects. Maybe you'd like to be editing. Um, but whatever your passion is, I think follow that passion, take that lead, get as much experience as you can, be it in local community theater or in, um, um, you know, in high school or uh, in college, whatever it is, any opportunity that you can, you can get to be alongside others who know what they're, what they're doing and that you can learn from and explore as many avenues as you can, because if it, something will come up that you might not even be aware was a job. And, and I think it's more important to be passionate and happy about getting out for work every day um, than it is trying to achieve a position that you might not be happy to, do, you know, doing. Other, other than that, how you get into the industry is a very tricky question. <laughs> I'm not quite sure now. Um, you know, we used to have a lot of opportunity for people to be interning on the stage, um, to be, uh, you know, mixing Foley footsteps alongside the effects mixer, mixer for instance. Uh, those things just don't happen anymore. And so trying to get real valuable mix experience you have to be very, um, uh, gosh, what's the word? You, you, you've just got to, you just got to fight, fight to get into whatever you can um, to get the experience that you that you need to get, and then hopefully some avenue, someone, someone will see you in the right place at the right time, and and offer you the next position, which can lead to the next position. But again, always follow your passion. You've done a lot of movies together. Do you want to pick one of the more memorable ones and share a little bit about it? I mean, with Dave, clearly, you know, Ford versus Ferrari and um, with Mike, you know, Greatest Showman. Um, <laughs> with Andy, gosh, Andy. It was Norman Jersen, <laughs> wasn't it? Norman Jersen. Yeah. But even even with like Moulin Rouge, where you were the, you were obviously mixing Moulin Rouge, but um, I think I just helped out for a couple of days with some sure did. with some second stage work, and that was yeah. great as well. Yeah, um, yeah, that was that was a terrific experience. That was yeah. so complex. One thing that, that a lot of people don't know about Paul is as brilliant as a mixer he is, he's also a really brilliant sailor. And uh, when we yes. when we worked together in Toronto, he had a sailboat, and we actually had some end of mix rap parties on that boat and uh, i think that was even more fun than mixing the movies um, i think the drift on lake toronto lake ontario <laughs> sorry <laughs> and uh, i was thinking you know with mobile stages and things now people working from home you ever thought of creating one on a boat paul we could set yeah. something up <laughs> definitely don't you think <laughs> I mean, come on let's do it David Gilmore's got a studio on a barge on the Thames. So I think uh, we should just I, I rest my case. Can yeah, you get exactly. the Harrison in there? Is the Harrison yeah. going to fit on the? Like, yep, it's got to be a big boat. Yeah, it <laughs> could be a big boat. We <laughs> can turn it sideways. There you go. <laughs> so we had some great times uh, with some rap parties there, Andy. Uh, we did. Fond memories of that. <laughs> too many people packed onto too small of a boat, <laughs> floating around Toronto Islands. Exactly. <laughs> Great memories, Paul. Great, Great memories. memories. Yeah. Questions for everybody. How, how does Paul handle uh, a situation where he's not comfortable with the direction something's going in? He just walks out. <laughs> <laughs> I can't answer that. 
he he executes and then he talks about it you know i mean it's 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 you know he's he he uh he has a for a mild-mannered man he has an incredible amount of experience and confidence and um he knows what he likes and he knows what works or doesn't work and he's not he's not timid and telling and saying it he's but he's extremely articulate and very handles himself with a lot of grace so he'll do something that he he's not fond of but then he'll turn around and discuss it with the director and it's amazing how many times he has the last word you think the accent helps yes <laughs> it's put on it's put on a hundred percent and he gets away with that too you know? I, can't, I don't know if it works in london but it works here no, it definitely doesn't work in london <laughs> congratulations on bafta oh thank you yes yeah I need to get the nomination. Yeah. Both Andy and I. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. I um I I've spoken to, to the Savoy. You'll have the Sinatra seat. It's all it's sweet. It's all arranged. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Don't worry about it this time. You got it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Fun times when we were there, Mike. <laughs> it certainly, certainly was. It certainly yes. was. <laughs> Congratulations, Paul, and thank you everybody for joining. Thank, thank you, you and um, thank you for this surprise. This was wonderful. <laughs>